Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 12 to 29. That's on page 1234 in the church Bibles. To the church in Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the church in Thyatira, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learnt Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. It's good to be with you today. 
Let's pray for God's help as we begin. Our Father in heaven, please help us by the Spirit to hear the words of Jesus. Might what we consider today be truly from Him. Might we hear it as coming from our Lord and our Savior and as the one who does everything good for us. In His name we pray. Amen. We've been talking at church quite a lot recently about sex and gender, and I wonder what you make of it all. Maybe you're asking why. Why do Johnny and the rest of us mention it so often? Why are we talking about all the Church of England is doing with same-sex marriage at the moment? Why are we concerned about what's being taught in schools about gender? Why do we care about the laws being passed to do with conversion therapy? Why do we take these issues in particular so seriously? Aren't there plenty of other things that we should be talking about? And I hope the reality is that we are talking about lots of other things as well. I hope that we're getting the balance right. I hope that our call to follow Jesus is right at the very center. But yes, these things do come up a lot, don't they? They're high on society's agenda, certainly as well. This is Pride Month. You'll have seen the flags everywhere, maybe at school, maybe at work. We're responding as best we can. What's really concerning, though, is that we're also having to respond to the things in the church. People are bringing the teaching in here, too, and it's across the denominations, isn't it? It's not just the Church of England. While at the same time, we're all trying to love those amongst us who have struggles, those who are same-sex attracted or those who've got questions about their gender. And we're wanting to make ours a culture where we all do sex and relationships well. We all seek purity. We all live lives of love and self-denial. But still, people could ask, Aren't we taking it all a bit far? Isn't some of this potentially just a bit homophobic or transphobic? Well, I think this section of Revelation speaks into some of these questions for us. Remember Revelation? This is a letter from Jesus to his churches. It's calling on Christians to endure in worship, not to give up loving Jesus. We've had that spectacular opening vision of Jesus in chapter 1. We're now in a section with seven specific messages to seven churches. But seven's the complete number in the Bible, and, and, and these churches represent all the churches. It's churches 3 and 4 today, Pergamon and Thyatira. And we'll see that on the one hand, they're doing pretty well. But on the other, they're rebuked because they're tolerating teaching which leads to sinful compromise. From this, we'll see why it's right for us to take seriously these issues about sex and gender and many other things too. I have two hopes though. Uh, First, I hope that we'll see how it lands right here with each of us in this church family. We're not just pointing fingers out there at other people. 
but applying these challenges to ourselves. Secondly, even if it is uncomfortable what we hear, I hope we'll understand that it's coming to us from Jesus, our Lord, who ultimately satisfies us. As we work through this passage, we could do one church, then the other, but given the similarities, I've chosen to gather them together as one. My points come from both, and I'll try to be very clear where we are at different times. So two points today, they're these. Uh, Jesus loves to see us standing firm in a hostile world, and Jesus hates to see us tolerating teaching, which leads to sin. So first, Jesus loves to see us standing firm in a hostile world. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives." Pergamon would have been a very hard place to be a Christian. It was a large city, a very pagan city. Clearly, there was persecution of Christians there. At least one Antipas has been murdered. Apparently, their main god in Pergamon was pictured as a serpent. I think it would have felt like Satan's own city. Yet they are holding on to Jesus, standing firm, and he knows, and he sees, and he's glad. It's similar in Thyatira, verse 19. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. They're doing well. He sees it. He's glad. There's no mention of persecution here, but a commendation of their perseverance, which suggests that it's hard there as well. Satan is mentioned again later in verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. So there is satanic stuff going on around them. But what does Jesus want? What does he ask of them? To hold on until he comes back. Jesus loves to see his people standing firm in a hostile world. Now there's bad standing firm, isn't there? Times when you should just admit you were wrong. Uh, With our kids sometimes, don't we? We just wish they would be honest and say what they did. Or even adults, we have those arguments. I have those moments. Why can't I just back down and say I was wrong? Uh, Politicians, you know, they double down on their position. I wish it wasn't sort of politically so bad to do a U-turn. There is bad standing firm, isn't there? But there is good standing firm too. When you're in the right place, and you're under attack. Could those Ukrainian soldiers hold their defenses when the Russians invaded? They did pretty well. 
Recently, I heard about a youngster at school being pressured to swear because they didn't normally go on, just do it. And, but they stood firm saying, I won't. Jesus loves that sort of standing firm. The enemies at the gates, will we stick with Jesus? I hope you know that the enemy is real. Satan is real and powerful, so we're in a battle. Revelation goes on to paint the picture of that battle. The world is a hostile place to us. In some areas, it is terrible, isn't it? With Christians being killed, as in Pergamon, so in Nigeria. In other places, it's just hard and grinding and requires perseverance. Maybe the UK is more like Thyatira. Friends, we must know this. Please don't be at ease. Even though our nation was shaped by Christianity, Satan is here and his forces are against us. Don't expect it to be easy. And let's remember our brothers and sisters around the world where it is daily the threat of death and let's pray for them. But know that Jesus sees it all, he knows about it all, he's the Lord of it all, and with him we will be conquerors. He loves to see us standing firm. Now secondly, and this will be more substantial, Jesus hates to see us tolerating teaching which leads to sin. Jesus hates to see us tolerating teaching that leads to sin. So back to Pergamon, verse 14. Nevertheless, I, that's Jesus, have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's background here. Uh, There's an Old Testament story that Jesus is using as his challenge to them on how they're tolerating bad teaching. It's Balaam and Balak. Uh, Well, who are they? Some of you will remember, uh, they're from Numbers chapter 22 to 25. We actually did a Numbers series back in the autumn in 2021. The sermons are all there on the website if you want to go back and uh, look at that again. Balak was the king of the Moabites. They were an enemy of Israel and they wanted to stop the progress of the Israelites. So he asked Balaam, a prophet, to curse them. Now, God did not let Balaam do a curse. Instead, every time, he was compelled to bless them. And so, in the end, uh, Balaam said they need to be more subtle. And rather, they need to entice Israel into worshipping other gods and sexual immorality. And that worked. Israel fell into sin. And here, Jesus is saying, it's happening again. They couldn't be got at by force, standing firm, even when Antipas was killed. So they're being attacked in a more subtle way. Verse 15, with the teaching 
of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. We don't know what they're teaching, but it's some form of teaching which is leading the Christians into eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Now, I'd love to explore in a moment the connection between those two and what's so serious about that. But first, let's just see how it's the same or at least similar in Thyatira. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. It's similar, isn't it? Again, Jesus uses an Old Testament story. This is from 1 Kings 16 to 21. I looked that up on the website. There's sermons there from 2007 as well, if you're interested. And in the story here, there was a king called Ahab. And Ahab married Jezebel, and she worshipped a different god. And he followed her in that. And then the whole nation followed them both. And it was a time of great unfaithfulness. It included shrines and sacrifices being offered to other gods. It probably also included shrine prostitutes there. And Jesus is saying, it's happening again. Here it's not a group like the Nicolaitans, but one person in particular, a prophet, who is leading them into sin by her teaching. And again, it's eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Jesus sees this, and he's very serious about it. The threats of judgment which follow are strong to hear. I bet you've got questions. Generally, it's great to have questions. On the back of our sermons, you, it, it's wonderful to hear people ask, ask questions. So if you've got them, do ask them. Um, I'm going to mention a couple that came to me this week. You might have others, so just come and ask them afterwards if you want. For me, my first question is, what's the connection between eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality? And then the second question, why are these so serious? Why are these the things that Jesus is focusing on? Well, I think it's all about faithfulness to Jesus. Real love for Jesus. He Make sense of it all. So, eating food sacrificed to idols, what's that about? Well, food would often be offered in temples to the gods, and then afterwards eaten by people. And it might be in the worship service there, or it might be in a social setting where people just eat the food, or it might even be in a business setting. Could be wherever, really. And some people might say, well, it's no big deal to eat that food. Those gods aren't real. It's just food, no need to kick up the fuss. Join in if you need to or if you want to. Eat and enjoy. But Jesus says it's compromise. It's participating in worship of another God. We are meant to worship Jesus alone without a hint of worshiping another. Paul explores this question again in, in three chapters of 1 Corinthians, and he comes to the same conclusion. 
We're meant to be standing firm in a hostile world. Imagine a Ukrainian soldier saying, oh, no harm in occasionally fighting for the Russians. How could we possibly accept teaching which compromises our worship of Jesus? What about sexual immorality then? What's that? Well, the Bible says that sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of marriage, with marriage being between one man and one woman. It's premarital sex, it's having an affair, it's seeing a prostitute, it's same-sex relationships, it's three-way relationships, it's watching pornography, it's anything. People find different ways of justifying it. Back then, the justification was probably something like this. Well, it's all in the body. It doesn't affect our soul, which is the real me. And so they'd say, well, join in if you have to or if you want to. Uh, Enjoy it. There's no harm done. Today, the justifications would probably be a little bit different, wouldn't they? Um, Justified more like this. Uh, We're going to get married soon, so no harm in sex before marriage. Or, no one's harmed by me watching pornography. Or, well, it's a loving and faithful same-sex relationship. And the people who are justifying these things, they won't just be non-Christians. There are Christians who teach this. So what's the problem? It's that sex within marriage was given to us by God as a good thing to be a picture of the ultimate relationship between Jesus and his people. We've got to do it right. Later in Revelation, there's this terrible picture of God's people being tempted away by the great prostitute, the devil. But the end of Revelation is this wonderful picture of Jesus meeting his bride and the delight and the satisfaction of the consummation on their wedding day. So teaching which says other things about sex and marriage is unpicking this central idea in the Bible and everything unravels. It's saying... You can find satisfaction in other places. It's saying self-denial is not important. It's saying how you feel is king. It's saying faithfulness to Jesus and his word, it's not essential. It's saying faithfulness to Jesus is not the very thing that will satisfy us completely. We end up in practice worshipping a very different God. And so you see, when it comes to Jesus, idolatry and adultery are the same thing. And they are very, very serious. Friends, we cannot tolerate teaching in the church which leads to sinful compromise. Both churches here are called to repent. The prophet who has already been told to is refusing and so she... Everyone else is told, you're in danger, you need to repent of tolerating this teaching and the deeds that go with it. 
Otherwise, you're in danger of judgment too. And as with all these seven messages to the churches, we must hear what is being said to us. So I wonder what might be coming to mind. Different things for each of us, I'm sure. On that idolatry question, eating food, sacrifice to idols, one thing might be the sort of teaching that says participating in multi-faith worship is okay. In the Church of England, there are cathedrals which are happy to have prayers to Allah included or readings from the Quran. That's not okay. And trickling down to us, it's when we say, well, as long as people have a faith, that's okay. But idolatry actually takes many forms. It's, it's whenever we're claiming to live for Jesus, but as well living for something else. When we say we can do both. So it's seeking our wealth and our prosperity. It's, and Jesus is, you know, Jesus is great up to the point where I can still live my fun life. I wonder, have we compromised anywhere on what we're living for? On sexual immorality, there's lots of things it could mean for us. We're all sexual sinners. For each of us, there's probably something that comes to mind, an area where we know we're not living within God's good design. Well, whatever it is, it matters. We must stop. We must repent. We will find forgiveness. There's nothing beyond the grace of God. We've got a wonderful Savior who washes us clean. But the problem is when we tolerate it, when we say it's fine. And we must resist this whole sexualization of culture, this free attitude to all sorts of sexual activity, the stuff being taught in schools. God's design is the good one. And in particular now, we cannot tolerate the teaching in the church which allows sexual immorality to take place, which tries to justify it. Now look, there's loads of stuff going on, loads of different things happening, different denominations, different churches, lots of different people involved. We shouldn't generalize. There's a mix. But in the Church of England and here in Sheffield, it's not good at the moment. We've got people campaigning and teaching for a change of doctrine on marriage. We've got local clergy in same-sex partnerships. We've got others who are celebrating them, many more who are just turning a blind eye. Our bishops, now they've been clear, they say that they, they don't believe in changing marriage. That's good, but they're not disciplining anyone. They voted for the changes, so it's a mess. People are being led into sin. It's terrible. It's a tragedy. Personally, I'm really upset by this. I'm so sad. I was brought up in this denomination. I've been ordained in this denomination. I was expecting to work within this denomination for years, reaching out to the lost with the good news of Jesus. That's what I love. But I'm torn now. I want to, I want to fight for my church and for the truth. 
but I want to hold my integrity. Now, I know my own sin, and I hate it. I'm trying to work out what it means not to tolerate this teaching in our church. I guess speaking now is part of what we can do. We've all got to consider this. Jesus hates to see us tolerating teaching which leads to sin. Now, this might be uncomfortable stuff for us to hear. I sort of wonder what it would have been like in Pergamon and Thyatira as these letters were read out to the churches. I guess there would have been some squirming in the seats, maybe even some forceful responses. But I hope that we might be able to thoughtfully digest this and hear it to the extent that what I've said is biblical as coming from Jesus, the Lord who really satisfies. Due to time, we've not really explored how Jesus is described in these passages. Just briefly, though, to Pergamon, he was the one with a sharp, double-edged sword in his mouth. That's reminding us that his words are powerful. His teaching is the best for us. But also, his word of judgment will come. At the end of that uh, section to Pergamon, verse 17, Jesus is the one who offers manna. That's the food sent from God that satisfied the people. He also gives a white stone with a personal, private name on it. I think that's something of the intimacy promised by Jesus for us. To Thyatira, Jesus is the Son of God with eyes like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. This is his authority. He's the Lord of all. He will stand forever. And one day, verse 26, we will stand with him. Put these together, I think we see that Jesus is the Lord who intimately satisfies us. We struggle to hear these things because they make big demands over us. We struggle to receive them because they challenge our desire for intimacy and satisfaction. But Jesus is the Lord who intimately satisfies. I pray that we can have ears to hear what he says to us. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for speaking to us through your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, to the extent that what I've said is true before you, please help us to hear and believe and respond well. Please help us to stand firm against all of the devil's attacks, whatever they may be. Help us to hold firm to your word and to your teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.